Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. In our previous episode of Crossing the Chasm, we explored the topic of mentorship and sponsorship in uh, higher education. Uh, one of the differences within medicine is the uh, focus on graduate medical education, very specifically the focus on the training of physicians who are specialized in a, in a particular area. And one of the most important areas with respect to diversity is understanding that concepts such as racial concordance uh, have significant impact when we are addressing clinical outcomes. With recent reports that have come out in the Journal of the American Medical Association, uh, as well as in other venues, clearly indicating that it's important to create a clinical workforce that is reflective of our ever-changing population. Uh, the focus on graduate medical education, the focus on changing the composition of uh, those who are involved in medical school uh, and go on in very specific specialties becomes even that much more important. And so today's episode is really going to get into exploring that and understanding um, not only that importance, but the importance of representation uh, in various specialties and in various areas of leadership uh, and how that really reinforces the incorporation of DEI initiatives at multiple levels. So today we are joined by Dr. William McDade, who is the Chief DEI Officer at the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education. Dr. McDade has an incredibly distinguished career uh, with his training in medicine, first at the University of Chicago Pritzker School of Medicine. Uh, he also completed a PhD in biophysics and theoretical biology at the University of Chicago, uh, went on to complete a residency at the Massachusetts General Hospital in anesthesia. He is a former board member of the American Medical Association and a long-standing member of its Minority Affairs Consortium. Uh, he continues to be a professor at Rush University and has had an ongoing mission throughout his career in ensuring that diversity, equity, and inclusion are continued to be highlighted as a part of his ongoing work. Uh, so welcome, Dr. McDade. Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, our DEI podcast focused on healthcare, and I am incredibly excited today to be joined by uh, Dr. William McDade. Uh, this is, as I already shared with Dr. McDade, a fanboy moment for me. He has been uh, somebody that I've looked up to for a number of years uh, in my own medical career. Uh, he is a graduate of the uh, University of Chicago School of Medicine, uh, as well as the Harvard uh, School of Medicine, where he uh, graduated and focused on anesthesiology. He went on to, uh, that's where he did, you did residency as well as medical school there, if, or sorry, residency there. Residency. Jay, we'll make sure to get that cleaned up, Jay. 
Uh, and then he's also completed a PhD through uh, the University of Chicago. So an incredibly uh, accomplished individual who is currently serving as the DEI director for the uh, ACGME. And for uh, those who don't know what the ACGME is, it's the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, um, which really uh, essentially affirms um, and accredits uh, all schools of medicine for the residency program. So Dr. McGates, so thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Johnson, and thanks for inviting me to come and join you. Fantastic. So as we always start off our podcast, uh, the real opportunity is first and foremost to share your own story, uh, particularly about how you arrived here. Um, we always love to hear that, so please tell us. Well, so I have a rather long story because I'm coming toward the end of my career, but uh, the way I initially became interested in medicine is that um, I went to college with the thought that um, I would become a dentist. And uh, I was in a summer program, as it turns out, the summer before I started uh, college uh, that was designed for people who were preparing to take the dental admissions test. It was run by a gentleman named Phil Roberts at the University of Illinois. And uh, through that, I was able to engage with a, a dentist named Elijah Greenfield, who had an office in orthodontics practice on 87th and Stony Island here on the south side of Chicago. And after riding my bike over there on Saturdays and engaging with the students in the, the course uh, during the course of the week, I recognized that dentistry may not be the, the right thing for me and that instead I might want to focus on the science of medicine. And so um, I became very caught up in chemistry courses that I'd taken at DePaul where I was an undergraduate. And, uh, and they had bulletin boards that you'd have to pass by and many offered summer opportunities for people to do research. And so I actually selected one uh, at the Illinois Institute of Technology um, to attend and, and really worked in depth with a fellow named Russ Temkovich, who's now oh, actually who's retired now, I think, but it was at um, the University of Alabama uh, subsequently. And, and through that research, I became very much interested in, in biophysics, as it turns out. Uh, I worked with a, another researcher at the DePaul University for my freshman year on, uh, Dr. Avram Blumberg, who was a physical chemist. And so using physical methods to try to solve biological problems became what was foremost in, in my mind. And, and so when I graduated from DePaul, I went into the medical scientist training program at the University of Chicago, which offered the opportunity to uh, do the combined PhD and MD program. So I was advised by a, a faculty member, the, the first African-American tenured faculty member at the University of Chicago, Dr. James Bowman, um, when I went to him for advice as to whose lab I should work in to obtain my PhD. He said, with your interest in physics and biology and chemistry, um, you should probably consider working with a guy named Bob Josephs. So Bob Josephs was a new professor there that just recruited from Rehovot uh, University over in Israel, and he did structural work in sickle cell disease. And so he said there are very few African-Americans who are studying sickle cell disease at the molecular level, and you could actually make a contribution in that way. Uh, Dr. Bowman was an internationally known researcher in sickle cell disease and actually was director of the Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center at the University of Chicago at the time. And so I went over and met with Bob and the folks in his lab, and, and it was a, a match uh, that was designed from the very outset. So I ended up getting my PhD in biophysics and theoretical biology after working with him for several years. And then I went back to finish the rest of medical school and decided that the way that it combined a career in research and a career in medicine, clinical medicine best, 
was exemplified by a, a colleague named Dr. Jonathan Moss. And John Moss actually was a, a person who could really speak the language of anesthesiology and, and knew that the people who were involved in the basic research that was done in anesthesiology, and he was an adept clinician as well. And, and so I saw a model of someone who could do clinical work and research all in the same week, and, and that's what I really wanted to do as a career. And so ultimately, I went on to do my residency at, at, at Harvard at the Massachusetts General Hospital and then came back to the University of Chicago to join the faculty. The chairman at the time, Michael Roizen, was very much uh, uh, interested in having me return, and uh, I stayed on the faculty there about 22 years or so after uh, coming and joining. But I, I tell you, that the, the most exciting part about this was that my office ended up being right next to John Moss's. So it's a it's an incredible feeling when you get a chance to to interact with your mentor, learn from that mentor, and become peers with that mentor, just as you've done, Dr. Johnson. Uh, I remember you from very early on as well, and and now here you are in your career doing exactly what I'd hoped you'd do. Well, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate that. And uh, yes, you're you're right. Getting a chance to to sit with a mentor um, adjacent to them and and interact is absolutely fantastic. So may I continue just for a second because I, I left out the latter part of my career. So absolutely. one of the things that, that I actually did um, very early on is I became interested in, in organized medicine. It's how doctors can align their voices in order to um, better champion the, the needs of patients and advance the profession. So for my very first meeting uh, of the American Medical Association as a student, um, the, the fourth year student who was a representative to the AMA was a guy named Dr. Ron Davis. And so he recruited me to the AMA as a first year medical student and I became involved at the local level in the Chicago Medical Society, the state level, the Illinois State Medical Society, and then eventually the national level in the AMA. And, uh, and I will tell you that I held a number of positions because I did it from the start of my time being an MD-PhD student, which was about nine years. And so uh, I got a chance to hold a lot of jobs in the AMA and, and, and in the local and state medical societies, being president of the, the student section and, and eventually, or chair of the student section, and then being president of the society eventually in my career. But one of the things I learned is that when doctors speak together, that they can actually make uh, things happen for patients and they can actually change in, in, in the profession in very positive ways. And when I got to the University of Chicago as a faculty member, I continued that. Uh, I served on a, on a body when I was a resident called the Advisory Committee to Minority, uh, for Minority Physicians to the Board of Trustees of the AMA. And eventually I became a board member of the AMA after having served on its Council on Medical Education. And ironically, the Council on Medical Education of the American Medical Association actually uh, co-sponsored an important paper back in 1910, along with the Carnegie Foundation that was authored by a fellow named Abraham Flexner, which really defined how medical education would be uh, meted throughout the rest of the century up until now even. The two years of basic science and then two years of clinical science model was the European model that Flexner wanted to see adopted in, in US medical schools. One of the other things that Abraham Flexner's report actually commented on was the medical education of the Negro physician. In chapter 14 of that particular uh, report, he talks about the need for having minority physicians or for having African-American physicians. And that was because there were 60 million people who were white in the country at the time, 10 million black people who were newly liberated from having been emancipated from uh, slave, enslaved conditions and that they could serve as a source of contagion 
to the rest of the population were they not served and that there were physicians who could take care of them who were from their own race who we have to figure out ways of educating so as to prevent the entire population from succumbing, succumbing to disease. And, and so the rationale for um, the keeping the two black medical schools that were recommended to stay open after the Flexner report was written, many medical schools closed. At that time, there were seven black medical schools, all but two closed, those are Meharry and Howard, and they remain in operation today. Um, but what, what is recognized is the idea that concordant care, physicians of the same race delivering care to patients of that same race, became a model for which red, uh, medical education was structured and how medical care is actually provided to a large extent in our society. And so the rationale for why diversity, equity, inclusion are important, the, the diversity aspect is the idea that we have to create a corpus of physicians who really fit that same model to deliver concordant care. If we have a, a problem with health disparities with respect to African-Americans in the white community, with respect to Latins in the, in the white community. And one of the things that we have to do is to produce more physicians who are more willing uh, and, and who are dedicated to serve that population of individuals. And so uh, Flexner recognized the importance of this back in 1910 and actually probably helped to structure, unfortunately, the way that it's being delivered even today. And there are multiple studies that we can talk about on concordant care, but the idea is that that's why we care about race in terms of medical education. That's why diversity is important. People tend to seek care within their own communities because they trust the people in their community and they don't trust people who are not from their community. And there's so many things that have happened over the, the last several hundred years in this country that have given minoritized people good reason to not believe that the things that um, uh, the majority community is going to do or has done for them would not necessarily be in their best interest. And so this trust that the medical establishment that's largely white and, and Asian, as it turns out, has with the black community in particular is really fraught. And we have to figure out ways of developing that trust. And part of it is having practitioners who come from the community who can engage and understand the folks who are there. And so these are the, the reasons why I think concordant care is important, the reasons why we think diversity is important, and why my, my career has really been focused on that. So when I got to the University of Chicago, we started a number of pathway programs to try to get people into medicine who came from these communities. And later on, went to Ochsner, the uh, largest healthcare provider in Louisiana, uh, with about, I think, 41 hospitals now. Um, and, uh, and, and in the southeastern United States, that whole segment of the country is where health disparities are the greatest. The large African-American populations are there that are largely underserved, many of them uninsured because many of those governors have chosen not to adopt the Affordable Care Act provisions that would allow them access to care. Um, and, and there are not enough physicians of color who are in those areas as well. So if we could do something to develop the physician population in the southeastern United States and we can do something in the state that, uh, in Louisiana that had actually had just adopted the Affordable Care Act that Governor John Bell Edwards did, uh, we might be in better shape. And the second thing that uh, really drew me there was the opportunity to build stronger relationships with Xavier University of Louisiana. It's the number one producer of African-Americans who complete medical school, and it's been that way for a very long time. And to develop a, a medical school relationship or a healthcare professional professions relationship with them and Oshner really represented a fantastic opportunity. So it re really sold me, uh, sold me on the idea of going to the southeastern United States. 
Unfortunately, as politics in Louisiana is, if the governor's not on your side for the particular um, move you're trying to make, then it's not going to go very far. At that time, we hadn't persuaded John Bell Edwards of the idea of the importance of that additional historically black medical school it would be the fifth in this country. Um, and, and so I returned when the when the opportunity arose at the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education to come and, and work there with respect to diversity, equity, inclusion. I, I led a task force that looked at the issue of uh, diversity, equity, inclusion after I had rotated off the board of the ACGME um, back in 2018. And one of the provisions that we actually described was the formation of an office in the ACGME directly focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And little did I know that Dr. Nasca, the CEO of the ACGME, would actually ask me to lead that office. And it actually then drew me back to Chicago from uh, New Orleans after the medical school idea with Xavier didn't work out. But one of the things I am very happy about is we actually had a relationship at Ashner with the University of Queensland. Uh, in, in Brisbane, Australia, where we would track 120 or so U.S. citizens to go to the University of Queensland, one of the top universities in the world, to go for the first two years of basic science training and come back and do the last two years of clinical work at Ashner at facilities in New Orleans. And so that really represented a pathway of increasing physicians. But unfortunately, because of the expense involved, I was not able to get so many uh, minoritized physicians involved in that, uh, physicians in training involved in that program. But one of the things we talked about as we were working to, to build the medical school with Xavier um, was a threatening potentially to that relationship in Queensland. And so one of the things we did to create a, it was to create a cover story for what we were doing with Xavier with Queensland as we were renegotiating another extension of a contract there to say that we were actually working on a PA school. And so we actually did, in fact, create a PA school which now exists between Xavier and Ashner, which was, I think, a delightful byproduct of that relationship. In just March of this year, now I've been gone from Ashner about three or four years, um, they made the announcement that there will be a medical school that will start with the relationship between Ashner and Xavier. So I'm really pr pleased that President Verrett and now Pete November, the CEO at Ashner, were able to work that out. Leo Swanee, who's their, their now chief academic officer, the role that I once had there, uh, have really moved that ball in the right direction, and I'm, I'm thrilled beyond measure. So the work that I do at ACGME now is to try to enhance diversity with respect to the physician workforce. Uh, ACGME uh, training is required for every licensed and board-certified physician who practices in the United States. So through the ACGME, we really get a chance to inculcate the idea that diversity, equity, and inclusion are important. We're asking every program to engage in operations that, that are consistent with the mission that will lead to increased diversity and more inclusive learning environments. And uh, we actually are trying to provide safety for those individuals within the learning environment such that they can grow and blossom and, and thrive and, and become successful physicians to care for that population that we talked about uh, and disproportion uh, minoritized individuals. So there's this, there's the story of my career. And a beautiful one at that. Uh, uh, as you were reflecting on all of those, I was just thinking of all of those particular touch points. Um, you highlighted the fact that Xavier formed its its medical school. I was unaware of the fact that there was also a PA school associated with it. So uh, it's really all of your ground, um, um, the, the the ground that you laid uh, in advance at Oshner, and then now uh, sort of bearing fruit in multiple ways to really support. Um, minoritized communities, uh, particularly with uh, Xavier having such an important role, particularly in the, the South and Southeast. 
Um, I, I was a residency classmate of Leo, so it's uh, it's 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 been great to see him follow in your footsteps and help to to continue that work. Um, and it's been fantastic to to hear about all of the additional work that you've done at uh, so many um, different areas within um, within medicine. I, I want to dial in on something to to get back to it because obviously in your role as DEI uh, director for the ACGME, you've you've reinforce something that is very clearly in the literature with respect to racial concordance in care for patients. Um, I would love to get your response because I know I have my own when people are like, well, aren't you supporting resegregation? But like, you know, is, is, <laughs> isn't that just just the same old, you know, trying to do the same old thing and, and, and you, you know, saying that, you know, you need to stay over there and we need to stay over here. What would be your response to somebody who um, says something like that, and I won't put my additional well, comments. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I used to get askance looks when I, I really advanced the idea that racial concordance was a way to deliver care, but there have been so many people who've actually studied the benefits of racially concordant care. Um, Lisa Cooper at Hopkins has been studying this for a very long time and looking at whether it's a patient-centered approach or whether it was something more, and her work suggests that it's more than just being patient-centered. It actually has to do with whether you have a, a bond with the, uh, the community, whether there's trust that's involved, and whether there's actually increased patient satisfaction. And, and my colleague uh, Owen Garrick and Marcella Alsan, who's now at Harvard, was at Stanford at the time working with Owen. Owen uh, is now the uh, uh, clinical trials uh, operator uh, chief, rather, at um, uh, CVS, uh, CVS Research, CVS uh, Pharmacy Research. And one of the things that he's trying to do is to enroll more minoritized people into clinical trials. He used to run a company called Bridge uh, that would do that same sort of work in Oakland. But uh, he and Dr. Elsan got together and did a, a very interesting study out in Oakland where they took African-American men and they randomized them to a, a white physician practice or a black physician practice that they established. And one of the things they were looking at, and this was a preventive medical medicine trial that was actually published of all places in the National Bureau of Economic Research. Dr. Elsan uh, is an economist as well as a, as a physician and actually uh, published it there because they did some very elegant mathematics after collecting some data on this. What they found is that when the black male patients talked to uh, white physicians that they didn't talk about as many of their clinical problems. And they talked about uh, problems in greater depth when they talked to black physicians and that the black physicians wrote longer notes. And then they did some analysis of, of why they think that uh, they, the health outcomes could be improved. And what they showed was that you had a 19% uh, improvement in healthcare outcomes from a cardiovascular standpoint when there was concordant care uh, with respect to cardiovascular morbidity, that is sickness from cardiovascular disease, and a 9% improvement in mortality simply by having racially concordant care. And what they thought is that the diabetes and cholesterol screening were both increased by 20%, return visits were increased by 20% in concordant visits. They also showed that, and this is a pre-COVID study done in 2018, <clears throat> that even flu shots were more likely uh, in concordant relationships than discordant relationships. And, and I have to say that in the ensuing couple of years, uh, another colleague from Harvard, Fatima Cody-Stanford, published a paper with Marcella Elson, and they looked at whether or not um, people listened the same way to physicians who were of different ethnicities. So they had a black audience and a Latinx audience listen to the same message being given by a black physician, a white physician, an Asian physician, a Latinx physician. What they found 
is that when African-American audiences listen to the message on COVID being given to them by the black physician, they retained more information about COVID and they were prompted to engage in additional research on their own, independent of that, secondary to what they've been taught when the black physician was talking to them. And they saw a, a market decrement in the urgency to understand more about COVID and the retention of the information given when it was given by physicians of other races. So I, I think that the, the outcomes that we see with respect to um, how patients perceive they're being treated, how patients perceive the information, how physicians hear them and understand some of their issues is all enhanced and are all enhanced with respect to concordant care. I will also say that the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, the group that's the, the dean's group for all of the allopathic medical schools in the country, engages in something that's called the matriculating student questionnaire, where they ask first year medical students questions. And one of those questions is, do you plan after graduation to practice in an area that's underserved or um, has a, a large minority population? And they ask the same thing of graduating seniors in the graduating student questionnaire four years later. So what do we find in the, in the matriculating student questionnaire? Well, about 64% of African-American students say that they're going to serve an underserved and disadvantaged population. Um, that contrast to Asian uh, first-year medical students, where only about 22-23% say this, and white students around 23-24% say this. Uh, Latinx students are around 50%. Indigenous physicians are around, are around 55%. And, and so what happens after four years of a medical school curriculum in the graduating student questionnaire? Those numbers don't change at all. It's still about 50% of African Americans say they're going to study, they're, they're going to work in a disadvantaged, underserved community. Um, around 50% of, of Native Americans and around 50% uh, of Latinx individuals all saying that that's where they're going to practice, whereas it's around 20% of white and Asians. Yet 80% of the medical school population is made up of white and Asians. And, and so, you know, the idea that we have an opportunity during medical school to try to, to increase the, the knowledge and the understanding, the empathy that the non-minority physicians have with respect to um, disadvantaged and underserved populations, uh, we, we're not doing it to the extent that we could. One of the things that medical schools started, uh, allopathic medical schools started oh, about 12 years ago now, is a standard that says that we have to increase the diversity of individuals who are in, in medical school and that medical schools have to reach out to pre-medical learners to try to enhance that. So programs like SMEP, MMEP, the things that, that we've been doing for a long time at the University of Chicago, for instance, um, are now things that all medical schools have to try to involve themselves in doing to try to increase the pathway of people into medicine. But that was one of the poorest subscribed requirements or standards that actually the LCME surveys uh, were able to demonstrate. And it was almost like medical schools were saying, we're too big to fail, you can't uh, withdraw accreditation from all of us, and none of us are doing it, so we're not gonna, gonna really engage in much of an effort toward it. So it really has taken a long time for that process to evolve to the place that it is now, where so many medical schools are really working in this area. But in, in 2018, when the board at the ACGME put forth its common program requirement 1C, asking graduate medical education to do the same thing, that was the first time that graduate medical education was asked to be involved in this process of trying to get earlier learners onto the pathway of medicine. 
when I used to run the pathway programs at the University of Chicago, what I would typically do is I call on, you know, people who I trained or, or knew personally who were in, in some of my programs to ask them if we could have a high school student or a college student shadow them. And unfortunately, what happened is uh, the people who were under the greatest degree of scrutiny under the, the microscope uh, for their own professionalism were sometimes seen as being unprofessional because they had a high school student or a college student who was shadowing them. I find that shocking and, wow. and, and, and completely at odds with what is necessary in the profession. Wouldn't it be so much better if the program director called the group together in the morning and morning report and said, look, we've got eight high school students on service today, two are going to team A, two are going to team B, two are going to team C, two are going to team D. Then everybody from the top down understands that, that educating the next generation of minoritized physicians is important and, and that this is not an unprofessional Thing, but it is actually the epitome of professionalism because you're trying to advance and further the future of the of the field. So, so that's what the ACGME was hoped to do with its requirement to have programs engage in an ongoing mission-driven, sustained effort to increase diversity. People think it's competing against one residency versus another to get the few M4 students to come into your residency program as opposed to another. But it really is the idea that we want to get people as early as possible thinking about a path and a career in medicine. And, and so if residents can residencies can use their resources, that is their human capital to advise students, can use their opportunities for research and clinical shadowing so that people understand that they could be part of a career in medicine, then, then that's what we'd hope that, that GME could do. There are 13,000 programs across the country, um, 880 institutions. And so my hope is that we can actually advance the work of the pathway into medicine at the level of graduate medical education through ACGME. There's so many other things that we're doing as well, creating a whole curriculum around um, helping to people understand the importance of diversity within the residency program and what the experiences are of people who've been marginalized because of their identities in medicine. We have about 40 different uh, assets or, or, or variables that we've actually put into what we refer to as the fundamentals of diversity, equity, inclusion, and graduate medical education. And it's free on our website at Learn at ACGME. And we're actually putting together a book now uh, together with Walters Kluver, our publisher, on those fundamentals of diversity, equity, inclusion, and graduate medical education. So it's a very exciting time where we're actually doing a lot of education, but it's also a very scary time because you know, people are attacking diversity, equity, inclusion efforts yeah. around the country. And so while we're starting to make some headway, we're, we're facing some stiff headwinds in certain places. And so these are the things that I'm a little concerned about. The idea of concordant care, let me say one last thing, since that's what you, where we started. It really comes down to the idea that minoritized people are trusted, minoritized people are interested. Uh, there's a group at Harvard uh, that published a wonderful paper in academic medicine back in 2015, I think it was, um, called uh, Race-Conscious Race, Race Professionalism. And it dealt with the idea that Black and Latinx and Indigenous physicians have to navigate the personal and professional sort of competing interests that they may have. That is, if you work in an underserved area, you're not going to make as much money. If you're serving the underserved, you're not going to be able to, to do as well financially. And, and so if you choose to do that, why would you choose to do that when you can make more serving other people? And the answer is that we recognize as minoritized physicians the importance of the role that we play in those communities. And the, the give back that we have is to care for those communities that are disadvantaged and, and are underserved. And, and so... 
we navigating those areas, a couple of other papers have been published to look at where minoritized physicians relocate when they move from one city to the next. So if you live in one city and serve a community there and you move to another city, you often move to a city where the demographics are very close to the ones that you left because you recognize that importance. And I reflect back in my own career, one of my favorite days in medical school is when I was an M4, fourth year medical student. And I was in the ENT clinic and I got to care for my kindergarten teacher. Uh, I went to medical school about three miles away from where I went to grade school. And so uh, I've been on the south side of Chicago for a very long time. And, and so she was absolutely thrilled to see me. I don't know if she entirely remembered me initially, but I told her about some of her experiences at, at my grade school. And, and I was absolutely thrilled to be able to care for her. And by the time the interaction was over, she was delighted and thrilled and tickled about being there and, um, and, and having me care for her. And it really showed that her work as a teacher in that community actually paid off because one of the, the poor little black kids in the area turned into her doctor one day. So that, that sort of joy that you get from being able to, to serve your community in that way only comes in a concordant relationship. We have a new senior fellow at the ACGME, a fellow named Fred Hafferty that we just uh, actually liberated from Mayo, who studied this and wrote a very, uh, very interesting paper about a case study of a young Latina who enjoyed speaking Spanish in the free clinic that her medical school did, was very good with patients, and all of her peers thought that she should you know, be a wonderful primary care doc. And she surprised them in the scenario by saying that she was interested in surgery. And they all thought, well, you know, you, you came here on a scholarship, you're a minoritized person, you do well in the free clinic and primary care, and you speak Spanish fluently. You know, this is where you should be. You shouldn't want to be a surgeon like you've espoused. And, and she felt, well, she should have every right to be a surgeon just like you have every right to be a surgeon as a person from the dominant culture. And, and I have to agree that we shouldn't limit the opportunities that people have by asking them to perform concordant care um, and choose fields that are, 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 are non-primary care, that are only primary care, rather. Uh, I think we need to have primary care physicians who are minoritized, but we also have to have specialists because one of the biggest problems that, that a, a primary care doc has is trying to find a referral for a specialty problem. And, and so when you look at the opportunities that, that exist for minoritized people, it shouldn't be limited to just primary care. And you shouldn't expect people to necessarily serve concordantly. I mean, if they choose to do it, that's wonderful. wonderful. But if they don't, then you, you can't castigate them for wanting to make a better life for their families or for wanting to serve a population of people who may be different than them. I think it's a choice that physicians have to make in, in the individual level as to whether they'll serve in that way. But I think that there's great benefits from having done it. And, and I guess the, 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 the last thing I'll say about it is that one of the reasons that concordant care as a model doesn't work is because we're not making enough physicians. In the last 40 years, we haven't really increased the percentage of underrepresented in medicine physicians throughout um, all of medical education. Concordant care also doesn't work because there are other things other than the doctor-patient relationship that are important too. We refer to these as the social determinants of health or the structural determinants of health. Now, Jonathan Metzl would refer, refer to it as the latter. And these deal with the, 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 the elements that the, the society controls that actually adversely impact healthcare that has really very little to do with the doctor-patient relationship. I was just at a, a, a talk with Daniel Dawes on Wednesday of this week, and Daniel now runs the Institute for Health Equity at uh, Meharry, but was at the Satcher Institute at Morehouse and published a book called The Political Determinants of Health. 
And it talks about how laws, practices, policies, regulations, ordinances have all also contributed to adversely impact the health care of minoritized populations. And so with the political determinants of health, the structural and social determinants of health, all of those things have absolutely nothing to do with concordant care per se. However, the production of minoritized physicians does have a role in all those, because if you are a politically active physician, you can potentially change some of those political determinants of health. You can advise policymakers. You can help to promulgate change at that level. You can also work to try to change the social and structural determinants of health in your community, at your institutions, in your clinic even. And, and so these are things that we have to also bear in mind, have an outsized effect when we have more minoritized physicians who are in medicine. Couldn't agree with you more. And I know that um, as we highlight the the aspects of mentorship, sponsorship, but also just simply visibility of um, uh, minoritized, historically disenfranchised, whatever term that you you want to utilize, um, it's it's very real. And I know the the way that medicine was framed up to me was very simply: um, you want to be a teacher. You can do that in medicine. You want to be a you're you're always going to be a healer, but you can be a minister, you can be a politician, you can be a business person, you can do whatever it takes to to do whatever you want to do, but doing it as a physician is going to have, to your point, outsized impact in a variety of different ways. So I I could not agree with you more. Uh, oh. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, this is Jay here. Um just a quick question, kind of going back to that, really thinking about. Um, high school students, college students, and really that the idea of reaching out to them and, and helping to get that pipeline of future physicians. Um, you know, I just wonder how do you how do you even find those people? How do you connect and and develop that that pipeline, if you will? Because I think of I was I was pretty humble talking to a colleague not that long ago just about project management in healthcare and saying that I had just you know my social circle people to give advice to me to help me get into this field, and that person had to remind me like Jay, where I grew up. I didn't have a lot of people in those types of jobs. I don't have a network of people to give me that advice and help me get there. And so if we're talking about underserved communities. I don't I imagine there's not a wealth of doctors around the neighborhood to just invest in, you know, their neighbors and the people around them to be able to help develop them and encourage them. So I'm just wondering how how do you guys do that um, in real practical means? Well, well as Arthur Ashe would say, um, you you do what you can, you start where you are, but you have to do something. And, and that's the, the thought. So you, you make what, what you can with what materials that you have, the opportunities that you have. If you are a medical school or a medical center, you have a wealth of opportunities of, of experience. So you've got people who could mentor students. And, and how do you find them? You, you find them everywhere. Um, you go to the grade schools or the high schools in your community. Uh, let me go back a step. When I was the chair of the Minority Affairs Consortium at the uh, American Medical Association, now the Minority Affairs Section, um, there was a resident member named Sheila Roundtree from, I believe, South Carolina, who actually came up with the idea that we should ask physicians as AMA members to go into their local grade schools and high schools in order to try to attract students who may be minoritized in those environments into careers in medicine. We refer to it as a doctor's back to school program. And actually, by being chair and having you know good relations with my grade school still, I went back to my grade school and we did a doctor's back to the school video of what a, uh, uh, an activity for that uh, that program would look like. And we had some material stickers and pencils and giveaways for the students. And and so we did this video and we showed it. 
And a number of physicians around the country started doing it, doctors back to school, just going into their local schools and started engaging this way. But I will tell you that uh, after having done a lot of these, there are some, some extraordinary champions of doctors back to school. Alice Coombs is an anesthesiologist who is from Salem, Massachusetts, and was a past president of the State Medical Society of Massachusetts, now is the only African-American chair in anesthesiology in the country at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. Every time she went to a National Medical Association meeting, when she went to an AMA meeting, she would lead a doctor's back-to-school delegation wherever that meeting happened to be, whatever city it was in. And, and she just was a champion of the idea of doing this. I, I actually reflect back on this actual match day year, uh, which was two Fridays ago now, um, this class of people who matched represents the last group of high school students who I had a chance to mentor at the Young Scientist Training Program that I created at the University of Chicago, a high school program that allowed people to come into laboratories at the University of Chicago. It was funded by an NIH and IDDK grant um, that um, was absolutely phenomenal. So the last cohort of high school students have now completed college and medical school and, and now matched this last weekend or two weeks ago. And I can't tell you how thrilled I was to see people who I met when they were 14 years old now graduating uh, medical school and going on to programs around the country uh, in their match. Uh, we would take in a cohort of anywhere from nine to, to 14 children each year uh, into that program. And they came from King High School, you know, on 47th and 43rd and Drexel and uh, on, on, in Bronzeville, in the south side of Chicago. They came from some of the suburban high schools, it turns out, that have very high black populations now um, that are also challenged with respect to resources and opportunities. And, and what you find is that, that when you go there, you talk to their science teachers about the opportunities that you could have at the local university or medical school, um, that they actually produce really strong students who would have otherwise not have had an opportunity to see what was going on. Now, one of the things I used to do is I would call on my colleagues to bring them into their lab. So, you know, they'd come and they'd work in their lab and we'd pay their stipends for the summer and then they would meet in a cohort every week to talk about how to advance to, to the next level of understanding of what they were doing in their, their laboratories. But one of my colleagues was a, a young faculty member who would always take a high school student each year. And he and his postdoc would work along with the high school student in order to try to you know, help them learn and master some techniques. And what I was doing was I was slowing him down in the progress of his own work. And so when he actually came up for tenure in his department, he was advised by members of his department, the leadership, uh, to not go for it because he hadn't obtained his, his R01, his primary research grant from the National Institutes of Health by then. Now, he'd submitted but hadn't gotten a response back yet. And they discouraged him from continuing to apply, uh, continuing to, to go for promotion. And so he actually took the advice and, and left, went to a, a, another university, another wonderful university, obtained his R01, and uh, went on to become a, a leader in that department at that institution. Um, I think sometimes the mentorship, the advice that you get uh, from uh, predominantly white institution colleagues is, is difficult. And, and it's challenging because they'd like to hold you to the same standards, not recognizing that there was a, an opportunity cost that you paid, uh, what is commonly referred to as the minority tax or the black tax. And by me taxing him, by giving him a high school student every year, I undermined his career, unfortunately. 
And so that's the unfortunate reality that many minoritized people in academic medicine face is that they're doing double duty. They're doing everything that you do as a majority physician, but they also have this additional professional obligation to give back to folks in, in their own community. And it's very hard to do both. And, and sometimes they, they suffer victimization because of it. And we have to figure out ways of valuing that. If he'd been valued for having mentored a, a, a college student or a high school student in his laboratory every summer, instead of people saying, you know, you need to, you know, to not do that and instead focus on getting your, your research done and getting your R01 completed, um, that's the sort of thing that is so short-sighted in medicine. And it sticks with the <clears throat> historical, traditional pathway that I think we have to learn to abandon to some extent to look at the other ways that people contribute um, in, in, in terms of uh, academic medicine. I will say, go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, you speak about it from academic medicine in that particular perspective. I think that with respect to DEI and all aspects of healthcare, that tax exists. I think whether it's, you know, looking at, you know, we, we, it's been said in a lot of literature as well, which is that the DEI initiatives typically fall to the minoritized individuals when in fact, it's a broader community that really needs to be able to buy in um, with respect to that. It's a lot of additional work that goes in that you're right, is under, unvalued or undervalued. So yes, well, I, I, I just want to interject that. Yeah, well, that's the other hazard of depending on concordant care because it lets everybody else off the hook. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and, and, and so the idea is that we all must use cultural humility. Uh, this is a concept that uh, Melanie Turvlin and Jan Murray Garcia developed back in the late 1990s in their paper on cultural humility. And that we have to learn to subjugate the dominant cultural norms and, and beliefs and, and listen to our patients. I mean, we used to talk about cultural competency back in the early, 19, uh, early 2000s, late 1990s. But it's really more than just developing a competency, which is really nothing more than a, a set of stereotypes that you're developing about a, a, a patient's identity. Cultural humility means you listen to the patient. You understand what sorts of problems they're dealing with. And so many environments, for instance, if you're 15 minutes late for your appointment, there are clinics that want to reschedule you, but they don't realize that you had to take three buses and a train I, to get to where you are. And that, in fact, you take a day off from work in order to come to the doctor, it costs your family money. And if you have child care problems, then you have to figure out how to negotiate that as well. And sometimes your caregivers don't arrive in time, and that actually delays your ability to get out the door in order to make your appointment. And so you get to your appointment a half an hour late instead of 15 minutes late, and the clinic doesn't see you. Well, that's putting a lot of value on time, which is a very Eurocentric sort of uh, idea. Uh, if you think about it, the time differs in how it's, how it's perceived in different communities. And so we have to sometimes be sensitive to the communities of folks that we're treating in order to best serve them, or else what will happen is they just won't come. And if they don't come, they're actually hurting themselves because they're not receiving the care that they need, and that then exacerbates the healthcare disparities that we have. Dr. Dane, I could listen to you all day long in terms of this, but I did promise you at some point in time the opportunity to reflect back and, and think of any questions that you would want to, to send to me. And so I open it up in terms of is there anything that you um, that you would want to dig into uh, or ask? Well, you know, I, I think for, for physicians in general, we're now facing a crisis yeah. um, of mistreatment, of, of poor treatment in our environments. And, and you see people 
I'll, I'll call her by name, Uchi Blackstock, for instance, is a person who published an article in Forbes about three years ago talking about why she left academic medicine. And in part, it's because of the work that she was doing with to advance uh, health uh, equity uh, wasn't fully being appreciated. And when she was being considered for promotion, it was clear that, the, that it was not going to be something that was going to be in her future. And so she left. We see people mistreated in so many different ways. They're, they're harassed, they're, they're discriminated against, they're abused. Um, I, I know of another case of a physician who um, is an orthopedic surgeon an academic practice and does very complex cancer work and the pelvic acceleration is one of the bloodiest most difficult operations you can do as an orthopedic surgeon and she was given a first year resident to operate with which strikes me as putting a patient at risk and doing this but it was her own group that was trying to basically drive her out of the practice um, there's a fellow down neurosurgeon down in atlanta who now has gotten a lot of attention in national media uh dariata Wume. Who, who has actually also run afoul of groups that he's been in for one reason or another, and, and they're trying to derail his career. And, and so this sort of, uh, you know, doctor against doctor sort of work based in discrimination is something I think that's becoming uh, commonplace. And, and there aren't so many groups around the country that are working to, to defeat this and to, to fight. And so individuals are having to fight institutions, which is always very difficult. So uh, I, my question to you would be, uh, how can physicians work together in order to better um, address issues of discrimination in the workplace, in the, in the clinic, in the, in the operating room, clinical setting? It's a fantastic question. And um, unfortunately, you're right, one that is uh, underreported, um, except for the, the ones that you had highlighted um, specifically. I, I think... <laughs> I think that the first component in terms of doing so is reminding people that, you know, A, speaking up is, is a fundamental requirement of being able to do so. I think so many people feel exactly what you expressed. This is a career-limiting career move. The minute that I speak up, I'm going to be marginalized, targeted, you know, et cetera. Um, I think understanding that those of us who are in an area of influence yourself myself within within whatever your respective roles are have the opportunity to be able to shape the process and ensure that the process is actually maintained and not um, altered to achieve a particular outcome is important and knowing that a diverse slate of individuals who are in charge of the process are there to ensure that the process actually holds um, in order to allow for the, um, the well, I hate to use the word, but it's appropriate, accused uh, has the right to be able to defend him or herself is absolutely critical in, in terms of that. And then I, I think it's ultimately also, you know, the responsibility of all of us to be able to speak truth to power when an institution that doesn't have a diverse slate and doesn't have a process that's in place, but is using their power to target individuals um, very clearly speaks up to, you know, to challenge the institution itself, because the simple fact of the matter is, whether it's National Medical Organization, American Medical Association, Texas Medical Association, Illinois Statement, whatever institutions that exist, it is really incumbent upon those medical groups to really speak up for the, the individuals who are doing so. So that way we can demonstrate that there are collaborative forces of physicians that can continue to advocate for you 
not only at an individual level, not only within the institution, but when that institution isn't set up to achieve truly just goals, they can be challenged externally to be able to, you know, again, allow the person the, the due process that they um, require and deserve. Oh, that, that's a really solid response. I mean, I, I think ensuring that institutions have a due process system, that they stick to it, that they don't alter that process when dealing with, with minoritized individuals is particularly important. Because you have to think that you got to have your, your fair day to be heard and to be honored. Um, I also think, in addition to, to coming together, the idea that there's only, you know, the legal means of remedying this uh, is, is a problem. Uh, I, I think the idea that there can be restorative justice in an environment is, is a way that I think we have to start approaching these things because we can't just fire people. I think we right. have to figure out how to bring them in, call them in when they're engaged in, in bad behavior, too, um, so that they can change what they do and, and, and stop the oppression of those individuals who've been minoritized and, and, and subjected to, to mistreatment so much in the past. Well, that's that's a great answer, Dr. Dr. Johnson. I appreciate that. And I think it also just reinforces the importance of boards and other leadership institutions that have to be diverse in terms of that, because I think that, again, you know, some of the things that you highlighted and when we talk about the tax that um, it, the, the, the unspoken tax that exists for minoritized individuals, and if nobody's there to be able to reflect to the majority population of, I don't think that you can really understand the situation in the level of depth. Um, that's required to be able to adjudicate a certain or even understand a specific um, circumstance. I, I think that's critically important. Indeed. Well, uh, Dr. McDade, uh, again, as I stated, and a tremendous honor that you would take the time to join us uh, to share with us a ton of knowledge. Jay is going to spend, a, a, I, I see him like studying his screen intently because we have a lot of um, uh, podcast notes that we put in. And so a lot of the references that you made, we're going to make sure to layer in so people have access to the references that you made. Um, and um, we're we're going to be pretty excited to have this one released. And, and just thank you once again for being here. Uh, my last question to you is, if is there anybody that you would recommend that we talk to uh, that, that you think would be another great voice added to the conversation? Um, and if if so, is that somebody you could help us find? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will tell you that um, having been a board member at the American Medical Association, establishing the Office of Health Equity there when when I was a board member, I thought was a, was an important step for the AMA to take. The AMA has done so much, I think, to harm uh, African American physicians in this country over the last hundred years. In 2008, I believe, is when Ron Davis, that fourth-year medical student who became president of the AMA eventually, uh, issued an apology to African-American physicians around what, what uh, had transpired, with many local medical societies not admitting uh, African-Americans to membership, and so requiring being a state member uh, to be an AMA member instead of having direct membership to the AMA was something that uh, is, is quite uh, unfortunate and, and has really caused the creation, the exigency of that particular finding of the National Medical Association, is that African-Americans were effectively excluded from the American Medical Association for such a long time. Now there's an Office of Health Equity, and uh, it's led by a woman named Aletha Maybank, who's an extraordinary physician and uh, an advocate, and, and if there's a way that you can interview her. She will certainly educate your, your, your community here 
about the work the AMA is doing. Um, in addition, uh, there are board members now who are African American at the uh, at the American Medical Association. Um, Willie Underwood, who's a urologist from Buffalo, New York, who's a fantastic individual, as well as um, uh, uh, internal medicine doctor Willarda Edwards from Maryland, who's also a board member of the American Medical Association. So tremendous people who I think I would recommend very strongly. And then obviously there, there are fantastic people who are in medical education around the country. Um, uh, I would suggest that Leon McDougall, uh, who is a past president of the National Medical Association, who's at Ohio, the Ohio State University as their chief diversity officer, would be a fantastic person to, to bring in. He's a, a Navy officer, a former uh, reservist now in, in the Navy, and uh, an internal medicine or a family medicine doctor, I believe. And uh, he is particularly uh, important in terms of thinking about how um, the pathway into medicine can be furthered by what my favorite route into medicine is, is the post-baccalaureate program. Um, uh, he and Quinn Capers published a very important piece on post-baccalaureate programs, and I think people should know more about them. So, um, so those are people I go after. And then obviously Quinn Capers, who's a cardiologist down in Texas. Uh, he's now at UT Southwestern. So all these people are, are people who I'd be happy to send a note to on your behalf and uh, try to connect you so they, they can talk to you uh, about what you're doing. Send me a note and, uh, and then I will forward it on to them to tell them a little bit about um, what this is and, and why they should do it. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.